Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. We'll pick up where we left off. 1 John chapter 2. If you're new to Calvary chapels and the rock, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. You always know where we're going to be at because we pick up right where we stopped. Now, Father, as we make our way in our Bibles to our text for this morning's reflection, we pray that you'd prepare our hearts even as we are sitting here in your presence, acknowledging that you're here with us. We pray that you'd open the eyes of our understanding to get the most out of this study by hearing the voice of God and, and hearing and putting it into practice, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I've got a couple pictures before I read the news article. Uh, and the couple pictures will give you an illustration of what the article is talking about. First, ladies, this is the most expensive handbag in the world. It, it goes for uh, $45,000. It's a Louis Vuitton. And uh, uh, yeah, I did, now, the guys, I didn't want to leave you out for accessories, designer accessories. These are. Nikes that run just $1,000. They're not as expensive as the other styles that Nike makes. And so uh, go back to the first one. So I knew I was going to read this article about counterfeit and products. And so I wanted to start out with the pictures, right? So I was surfing around uh, designer bags, right? And as soon as I clicked on designer bags, up came a bunch of ladies' purses. And that second, from behind me, I'm looking at the screen, I hear Pastor Adam's voice go, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I turn around, and I go, oh, but that sermon in the illustration. And he looks at me like, of course it was. <laughs> Yeah, and so thank you for the, the pictures there. Let me read uh, the article to you. AP Network News happened this month. Newark, New Jersey. Federal officials in New Jersey have announced charges against 29 people in what they say is a massive international counterfeit goods operation, perhaps the largest in U.S. history. New Jersey's U.S. attorney says parallel international investigations resulted in arrests in New Jersey, uh, Texas, New York, the Philippines, which are ongoing. Defendants in the alleged rings attempted to smuggle $325 million worth of counterfeit goods from China through the Port Newark Terminal, trafficking items uh, included counterfeit Nike sneakers, uh, Louis Vuitton handbags, Ugg boots, and others. The groups took counterfeit goods manufactured in China and shipped them to the U.S. for sale to wholesale and retail outlets. So, in some of those crates unloaded in the Jersey shores, <laughs> you could find handbags that looked exactly like a Louis Vuitton bag, which you paid thousands of dollars for, but in all actuality, as far as quality and true value are concerned, it's equal to a $35 purse you could purchase at Walmart. Not good news for the ladies. People are duped every day, and it 
doesn't stop with counterfeit bags and shoes. There are spiritual counterfeits as well, as we've talked uh, very frequently from this uh, very pulpit in previous studies. The Bible has a lot to say about counterfeit teachers, counterfeit faith, and even counterfeit Christs called antichrists which is the subject John will address here in chapter 2 of his first epistle. Now, it's one thing to spend five grand on a pair of Air uh, Jordans and find out that Kmart has the same pair on their blue light special. <laughs> it's a whole nother thing to invest your life and your eternal soul in a faith that's phony and in a Christ that's counterfeit. So here in 1 John, for context, the apostle has been presenting his followers with some tests by which we could know whether or not we are genuinely saved. And for us, they are not so much tests as assurances. And at the same time, as he's offering us these tests, he's in an indirect way speaking against his opponents how they fail those tests. Well, now John is going for a frontal attack. No more indirect uh, mention of these false teachers, but now openly labeling them counterfeit teachers and calling them what they are, antichrists. So picking up in verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belong to us. And so this morning we're going to read through a couple of paragraphs, and we're just going to comment along the way um, of all the way down to verse 27. So the first point, if you're taking notes, is a heads up. Uh, Jesus is not the only one coming into town on Palm Sunday. There's somebody else coming. And Jesus said on the night he was betrayed, the prince of this world is coming. But he has no hold on me. He's got nothing on me. So we are to look for Jesus coming, but there's also somebody else coming, and John is just pointing that out. Yes, we are looking for Jesus appearing, but before he appears, someone else will appear, the great pretender, and a bunch of little wannabe pretenders as well, the Antichrist. And in the meantime, a bunch of junior Antichrist wannabes running around. So he says, heads up. Now, this section particularly is addressed to the new converts. That word children isn't saying dear children of God in general. He's saying to the little ones, uh, I just picture a bonfire. And he's addressing all the groups in the church. And then he looks over and to the, new, to the newbies in the faith. 
And he looks over there with great compassion, and he changes his tone, and he lowers his voice, and, he, and he, with compassion, he says, yes, I've just told you about the world trying to fit you into its mold. Watch out. It's a big, nasty world out there that's God-rejecting, and uh, be careful out there. And now he says, and there's another ugly truth. I didn't want to talk to you about it, but I have to, uh, that there's a problem also a danger right here in the home church. In Christian circles, the devil does his work. And so some of the leaders uh, of their church went across town to start what I call the spiritual center because it's very much like a new age operation. It's really called Gnosticism. And, you know, we've talked about this before. They've experienced this great awakening, this enlightening, the transcendence from primitive Christianity that is so exclusive and narrow-minded with do's and don'ts and sinning and guilt and shame. You need to be elevated into the light where there's just this revelation of love and peace and brotherhood and all of that stuff. Well, that was going on. And some of the leaders, the, the men that stood on the platform, the guys who served them the communion, the guys who were at the home fellowship groups and went on the rafting trip with them and laughing and praying together, those guys are now across town saying, are you kidding me? You guys are still doing that old school, primitive Christian stuff? And the, so John looks at the newbies and says, listen, hold steady here. It's very upsetting to have somebody from the platform that suddenly defect. They're not just going across town to Redwood Covenant. They're going across town to, sorry, it just popped into my head. They're not switching churches. There's no problem switching evangelical churches as the Lord leads you. He's not talking about that. They didn't leave to go across town and because they didn't get along with the pastors here or whatever. They left Jesus. They left a whole idea. And they started their whole new thing. And it's upsetting. So the churches are reeling, especially the new converts. And John has to break the news. What Jesus taught in Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds, he said a farmer planted good seed, and then while he's sleeping, this enemy comes in and scatters this wicked counterfeit seed that grows up, but they're, they're poisonous weeds, but they look just like the wheat. It chokes out the life and hinders the growth of the weeds. And who did that? Right in the church, you have weeds and wheat. In every congregation, you have a mixed batch. And so John says, listen, I hate to the sad, ugly truth is, is that just because they were in the church didn't mean a thing. And that time has a way of vetting out who is who, who's really plugged in and who's not. So John, just here in 18 and 19, says, listen, Newbies, it's time for Jesus' return. It's imminent, which means any second, the end of the world. And it's evidenced by the onslaught of spiritual deception. And this defection, and he's looking at the newbies right there, and he says, listen, this, that they went is a very sign that you're living in exciting times because Jesus said that would exact thing would happen before he came 
back. And so he's trying to assure them. So he uses the phrase, it's the last hour, which is kind of a spin on the last days concept that the New Testament talks about that started really with the day of Pentecost, really actually before when Jesus dies on the cross and raises from the dead, he accomplished 4,000 years of Old Testament history was done. Genesis 1-1 to the end of Malachi, finished, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, done, gone. So he says, now we're in the last days. The last days includes from Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is given, and the gates are flung open wide, and Peter the apostle gives that kind of the first evangelical sermon, evangelistic I should say, and then income 3,000 souls. The last days start from that sermon to when the last person gets saved. Done. Those are the last days. John's take on it is we're in the last hour. So really, if it was the last hour 2,000 years ago, what would we be in now? We would be in the last seconds of Earth's history before a Savior appears. And so he's saying, really, it's exciting times. F.F. Bruce said, in the Christian era, it's always five minutes to midnight. And so, you know what? Um, I love what Paul the Apostle said. The last days are called the church age and the period of time when people can take advantage of what Jesus did on the cross and get reconciled to God. Now, here's what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6. You know, he says, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. This is the opportunity that God has given to you, and it's a limited time only. That's why Paul says, today's the day. Now is the day of salvation. Well, because you're, you're guaranteed today, this moment anyway, but you don't know about tomorrow. So since there's a deadline, a midnight, a heartbeat that stops, if you hear his voice today, there's no reason for you to say tomorrow because to your eventual loss, you might miss the opportunity because it comes with a deadline. There will be a, a moment when the game is over, done. Nobody, you know, your heart stops, it's, it's done. Everybody whose heart has stopped is now officially what? A believer. <laughs> as soon as the heart. I mean, everybody, you, you look at these war memorials where thousands of, of uh, tombstones are. They're all believers. And it doesn't count to become a believer once you're face to face. I told you about the time I'm standing in Palm Drive uh, emergency room. Got nothing serious on my part, but I was I was standing there uh, getting ready to register, and in comes somebody on a stretcher with a guy across his chest straddling him, and and they're in a rush for you know to get this guy revived. And his wife is standing right next to me and his daughter. And then the doctor came out and we're all just standing there. I'm right standing with them. And, and I even know it was my doctor came out and said, uh, I'm sorry, he's gone. 
right in the Sebastopol Safeway parking lot. He just falls over and dies, a relatively young man. And she says, no, he can't be dead. We're going to Italy tomorrow. Those are the words she said. But no, you're not going to Italy tomorrow. Because midnight struck, it was five minutes, he had his lifetime. So it doesn't really matter if it's in a hundred years, in God's estimation of five minutes, which it, it could be. I personally don't think it's in a hundred years, I think it's sooner. But that doesn't matter because your appearing is sooner than a hundred years. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> I wish I could say April Fool's to that, but no. You know, about April Fool's, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so for the person who is an atheist, it's always April Fool's Day. <laughs> I'm sorry. Psalm 14.1. What? I didn't invent that. All right. So moving on, John says, look, um, you all know, you young ones in the faith, Antichrist is coming, the Antichrist, big A. He's coming. But just so you know, there are many little Antichrists to deal with in the meantime. Antichrist, the term John is coining here, means not just anti, like anti-abortion, I'm against something, but it also means instead of. And so the Antichrist will offer himself and his teaching and doctrine as a substitute. And so what new converts need to know is, is that the devil doesn't just make things obvious by saying, hey, you can come down and bow and become a Satanist. I'm trying to grow the church of Satan. No, he doesn't care that you bow down even in the name of Jesus Christ as long as it's not the real Jesus Christ. And so let's get a whole bunch of folks to bow to the wrong Jesus because the wrong Jesus can't save you if it's not the Jesus who is the God-man who died on the cross for the sins of the world, then you have the wrong Jesus. So when John uses the term antichrist, he means it in three ways. One, the spirit that's at work in the world through the disobedient, through those who oppose Jesus. That's the spirit of Antichrist. The second way he uses it is the false teachers who embody that spirit. They are called Antichrist, lowercase a. The third way the Bible uses Antichrist is a person who will head up the final world rebellion against God. <clears throat> Now, they all knew he was coming, but John, and, and, and John just indirectly says, you know, we all know he's coming, but did you know that there are a lot of little dress rehearsals along the way? There are the national level uh, godless world leaders who persecute the church, who go after the Jews, uh, who everybody thinks is the uh, Antichrist. Remember Gorbachev with that tattooed, uh, not, it's not a tattoo, it looked like what? He had a birthmark on his head, and so that was the mark, you know? And uh, all kinds of people have been named. But John is saying, actually, there are less well-known varieties who draw men away from the truth and to themselves and to their false teaching, like some of your former leaders. He says, they went out from us, 
the hard, cold facts, just like Paul um, has said, that the first there has to be a falling away. So before Jesus comes, the Bible says a couple things have to happen. One is this world leader will be revealed and the church will be taken out of the way. And so, and the third thing is there be a falling away. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The word in the NIV is rebellion. First, there must be the rebellion, but the word really means to apostatize. In the Greek, the word actually is apostasia, which just means to fall away from. So he says, before Jesus returns, there will be so-called Christians who fall away, that there's a big like kind of shake, and then you find out what's tied down and what isn't. And what happened is we found out that some of those leaders in their church were not plugged in. They fell away, but they had never been plugged in to begin with. And so John is looking at those uh, new believers and saying, you know, they fell away. And that's part, 2 Thessalonians, Paul teaches that, hey, don't get, you expect it. Jesus said this will happen. So we're right on target. It's, un, it's unfolding just as the Bible predicted. So don't get scared and don't get all freaked out that these guys defected and left Jesus because it's just another sign that Jesus is closer. And then I can imagine these new converts saying they fell away, but they went to seminary. They were guys, when they opened their mouth, it was like, wow, they know the Bible. And they were filled with, with love. And if they fell away, whoa, what about us? And then John is saying, not a chance. Here's what he says. Little ones, listen up. So-called Christians who looked and talked like believers, who denounced the faith, never really were in the faith to begin with. And they proved that by doing something genuine born-again Christians could never do, denounce Jesus and embrace falsehood. Now, when I lived on Cherry Ridge, we lived up there, beautiful place in between vineyards, just, just a stunning little place to live. Uh, back in the day, I don't know, five or more years ago, uh, there were some cherry trees and they were all in like full explosion of pink, you know? And, and I'd walk by and just admire them all. And I noticed on one little tree, there was one area that was dead, but only one area. And so I wondered about that and I went closer one morning before I went off to work and I just kind of poking around in there and I found out that there was a severed branch. A storm had come in and the branch was severed and, it, and, and at first, you know, nobody knew anything because it just all looks like one big tree. But then upon observation, it wasn't connected, it was dead, it was lifeless. Now, Paul is not saying that you could be severed from the tree. He's saying that they never were part of the tree to begin with. Now, can somebody be like temporarily insane? Yeah, the, the key word there would be temporarily. And then you would find them coming back because they are truly born again. Now, if somebody was never a part of the tree, 
while they're alive, they can become a part of the tree. And so those are the two kinds of avenues for people who have fallen away. Either they have not completely fallen away, they appear to fall away, but Christ's seed is still in them, and then he brings them back. And so that's just a little bit. You know, they went out from us, but they weren't a part of us. Sung Young Moon was raised in a Presbyterian home. He went out from them because he wasn't a part of them. Ellen White, prophetess, was a Methodist. Charles Taze Russell, the founder of the Jehovah's Witness, came from a solid Presbyterian Christian home. He went out from them because the matter was not in him from the beginning. A Mary Baker Eddy, Christian science, was raised in a Christian congregational home. She went out from them because she was never a part of them. Continuing on, verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and you know no lie comes from the truth. Don't worry, you're not going to fall away. You're not going to believe the lie. 22, who is the liar? It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father has the Son. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father as well. So if you're taking notes, I would say plugged in would be the second kind of thought here. Um, They left to prove that they never were connected. You remain, he says to the little ones, because you are. And he describes that connection in a most fascinating way. He calls it, you have this anointing. Now, it's an interesting word. Now, we don't use the word anointed. We don't say, we use the word, like ladies don't anoint themselves with foundation. They apply their foundation. It's the same word. You don't anoint your child with mentholatum. You rub it on, right? Okay. And and you don't anoint yourself with with cologne. You you I don't know. You spray or you dab or you whatever you do, but you don't anoint yourself. All right. Ancient people anointed, but that's what the word means. Now let me explain to you its significance. In the ancient world, they would dab or anoint or smear oil, scented oil, on the person that had God's approval, God's man, God's choice, God's power. And it would be like, oh, this magical aura about this person by symbolizing with anointed uh, oil. Now, back to the guys at the spiritual center. If you wanted to follow them, you had to find a teacher, and you had to have a ceremony and you had to get the anointing, the special anointing of Gnosticism, knowledge. And so they would surround you. They pour the flask on your head. They chant a little bit. You know, they got to have incense for new age. You had the incense and some chimes and some oohs and ahs and hocus pocus and boom. I just am overwhelmed with this feeling of love. And I saw a long tunnel and there was a light and it was the most beautiful light I've ever seen in the whole world the Satan is called the angel of light 
Anyway, I digress. I often do. Uh, but then they'd walk around town and going, I've got the anointing. I have the teacher. He anointed me, and I've seen the light. And everybody else was unenlightened. Well, well, well we got, you know, we got Pastor Ross, <laughs> you know, but uh, we, we don't see any light, but yeah, whatever. And so they are feeling bad, all right? So the New Testament writers say Christians have it better than some misguided false teacher smearing oil on some guy's forehead and chanting, God himself has poured out his spirit into your hearts. You want to talk anointing? You have the Holy Spirit joining himself to your soul, enlightening your mind with his attitude, his thoughts, his wisdom, his counsel. He says, you don't need a teacher. You don't need one of their teachers. you got the Holy Spirit in you. Didn't you get it as soon as you came to Christ? I told you many times about June 3rd, 1979, I walk out of a disco bar scene, literally. I got the whole download. I had never been to church a day in my life. I got the whole thing just like you understood it. I got heaven, I got hell, I said a little quick prayer, I understood what I should do, what I shouldn't do, I knew what I was doing was wrong. Nobody had to tell me I didn't need a teacher. I, God gives little baby Christians, just like he gives little baby humans everything they need, it needs to be developed, but even a little baby can distinguish light from dark, pain from pleasure, it knows when it's hungry and what it needs. He put that in every new Christian. And he says, that's your anointing. <laughs> and you're running out after these guys to smear oil on your head and walk around talking about the light. The light of the world lives inside of your heart. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that is really a paraphrase of what's going on. I remember when Pastor Adam came to the Lord now, many years ago, he was filled with so many questions. He'd ask a question, then I'd answer it, and he said, I knew that. I knew that. And then he would say, how did I know that? And he'd ask me, nobody told me that, but I knew it. I knew it. I could finish your sentence while you were talking. The Holy Spirit gives you the download. That's the anointing. Is he is in there. And he's making sure that baby Christians know what's true and what isn't true. And so he's saying, listen, you guys may not be able to articulate what happened with these bozos who left your church and started a spiritual center. You couldn't even go in there and tell them why. You believe what they're doing is wrong. You couldn't. You couldn't even find the verses if your life depended on it. All you know is bad, wrong, scary, anxiety, off, right? Exactly. You see a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness, nine times out of ten, the regular church person is really freaked out. You couldn't argue with them for five minutes to save your life. All you know is <clears throat> when you see them. And <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. Right? And I, first of all, and second of all, I don't, I don't think you should engage them unless you've done a lot of study. That's not your place. Paul says, shut the door. Don't even, that's what Paul said, don't even eat with such a one. 
Why are you going to do that unless you have a calling or you have some knowledge? If God opens an opportunity, you're standing there and he's prompting you, please, yes, have at it. Nine times out of ten, those, those conversations, I've been doing this 32 years with them. It never goes anywhere. Except that my blood pressure, it goes somewhere. <laughs> it goes up. All right. Well, let's finish up. John starts to get perturbed, and he says, let's make it easy. Let's define the word liar. All right? Easy. Verse 22. Anyone who says Jesus isn't Lord. Bam. So you know what you can do, guys? Go over to the spiritual center and just let's make this easy for you kids. Uh, ask them, is God, is Jesus God in a human body? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Is he the only way to heaven and the Father? And if they say no, you just look at them and say, liar. <laughs> That's what John says. That's, John is black and white. I don't know if you've noticed that about him. Liar, falsehood. End of story. So John says, look, the other thing he says, the false teachers say, you can have God the Father. Don't have a problem with God the Father. Most cults don't. We don't have a problem with God the Father. Our problem is with God the Son. Now, we got to ditch Jesus. Now, why do we got to ditch Jesus? Because he requires lordship. He requires us to deny self, pick up cross, and follow him. He makes us be accountable to live a moral life. Of course, we got to ditch God the Son. God the Father is just loving, love, 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 and merciful to all. With, but Jesus defines what that love and mercy looks like. Accountability, morality, dying to sin. Exclusive narrow door enters, says Jesus, through the narrow gate that leads to life. And few there be that find it wide and broad as the door that leads to destruction. And many go in that way. Oh, that's the Jesus we have a problem with. How exclusive. What about the sincere people groups of the world? That's why we have missionaries. That's why they have consciences. That's why they can see God in creation and, and, and know God through the light of their understanding that he gives them and to which they will, by which they shall be judged. You cannot know God without Jesus, says John. He says they come as a packaged item. John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of God the Spirit for the obedience to God the Son, Jesus Christ, for this, by the sprinkling of his blood. 24 to 27, if we have time, just a quick comment. So see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you'll, have, you'll remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised, even eternal life. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you. You don't need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, 
just as it has taught you, remain in him. And so, really, you know, it was kind of like I thought of this morning <clears throat> in my study, excuse me. Uh, I thought about the Cub Scouts when I was in grade school. And uh, I wasn't involved in the Cub Scouts, but all my friends were. And they would come to school, and they had a little oath that they could all say at recess. But I couldn't say it, because I wasn't part of the crowd. And uh, they had knots. They all knew how to tie knots, and, and I just knew how to make a big mess with a knot, but I couldn't tie one. Uh, they had songs they all sang, and they knew how to uh, have secret handshakes and all of that. And they had a den father. John is saying, you know what? It looks appealing, but you got the real thing. That spiritual center and all the collective knowing and all of that is just counterfeit. You got the real deal. So, so number three is a word of encouragement. Hang in there. Steady as she goes. Don't panic. You've got the real deal. You've got, your teacher is Jesus, the Son of God, and his anointing is his spirit. So he ends the passage by saying, stay close to Jesus, keep near his word, keep doing what it says, keep living in right relationship with him. An important word as we close would be abide in the King James or remain in him, NIV. Three times it's mentioned in the Greek, it's meno, and it means literally let it take up a permanent address in your being, let it have a settled home in your soul. It means to stay put, to dwell with, to hang out with. That's what John's asking. Now, it may sound like John is making salvation conditional based on your ability to abide. Not so. Um, here's a great Bible scholar, a really smart guy. He put it this way. When John says, make sure the truth or the spirit remains in you and you and God, He's not implying you can lose it. The spirit will never be taken from us. He's saying you're responsible for how he dwells in you, how his teaching lives out in your being, to what degree you are filled with his influence. You see, he's saying, see that it remains in you. If so, you remain in him. But the, uh, the uh, understanding here, and catch this, when Jesus says <clears throat> in Matthew 24, whoever endures to the end shall be saved, the meaning of that phrase is they who endure to the end are the saved. The saved are the ones because that's what we do. We've been programmed. We have the spirit of God in us. We've been already foreordained and predestined for that place. In fact, the New Testament says you're already there. It's already a done deal. He says he has taken you dead in your sins, put his spirit of life in you, made you alive, and then he says, seated you, seated, E.D., already done. You're already there. That's what God says. So to say, now, if you just remain you're going to make it. Now you've got to remain to be saved. Wrong. The saved remain because that's the character of salvation that's God put in our hearts. We can do none other. Yes, we can shipwreck our earthly lives, 
and mess everything up and wind up with just about nothing up there but eternal life as saved as just by flames? Yes. But once the Spirit of God comes into your soul, it's over. Jesus said to, says to the damned, depart from me. I never knew you. We never met. If he had met just one of them, and then it didn't work out, those words would be false. The reason he tells us what he says to them on that terrible day is to assure us, you can't have met me in life and then unmeet me later. It doesn't work because I will say to them on that day, I never knew you, we never met, it never happened ever once. It may have looked like it. And there was stuff going on. But this, zzz, missing. And that's what brings life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through the Holy Spirit, we have life. We felt that zap of energy into our hearts that made us alive. We didn't want to do things the old way anymore. The sound of cussing bothers us. The sound of people uh, blaspheming God's name now suddenly. We're just different. We're new. We're in Christ. Thank you for that anointing, for the spiritual pouring of yourself into our hearts whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit of God. And we can say, Father, from our hearts, because you're there. We thank you for this great and awesome truth in Jesus' name. Amen.